Parkinson disease affects one million people in the United States. Depression is present in as many as half of these patients. What evidence-based treatment should we be using? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. Matthew Menza. Dr. Menza is a professor of psychiatry and neurology and the interim chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey. Among many other professional duties, he is the chair of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, Parkinson and Depression Multicenter Trial Review Board. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Menza. Thank you, Leslie. Glad to be here. So, Dr. Menza, why do so many Parkinson's patients also have depression? Well, you know, certainly living with this illness can contribute to feeling depressed. I mean, this is an illness that hits many people in really their peak years in their 40s and 50s and 60s. And it certainly has a major impact on many of the things that we enjoy doing. So I think just from a personal point of view, most of us can empathize with these feelings of depression. However, it really looks like from a variety of studies that there's something more to it than just living with the illness. There are a number of studies now which have suggested that many of the neurotransmitters in the brain that we know are involved in mood, such as norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, all of these are markedly impaired in Parkinson's disease. And so we think in the end it's probably a combination of this kind of neurochemical problem in the brain that accompanies the degeneration of Parkinson's disease as well as the many, many problems of living with the illness. Now, does the severity of the depressive symptoms affect the progression of the Parkinson's? There's definitely a connection here between one's mood and one's movements, although it's not very well spelled out. There have been some studies that have suggested that if the depression is more severe, that the movement problems are going to be more severe, and that over the course of time, the people who have depression have a more rapid progression in their movements. Mm -hmm. And certainly, if we think about just depression in general, we know that many people who have depressed have either psychomotor slowing or some tremor or shaking. So there clearly are some connections here between your mind and your movements. And kind of the, I don't know whether it's the converse, or but I'm also thinking one of the treatments we often use for depression is to increase your movement and exercise. That's exactly right. So there very clearly are some connections. And, you know, we certainly also encourage people with Parkinson's disease to exercise a lot, whether or not they have depression or not. It's one of the best treatments for keeping people more involved in life and vital. So that's a standard recommendation that we make to everyone, I guess everyone in general, whether they're depressed or not, and certainly everyone with Parkinson's disease. So in these patients that have both Parkinson's and depression, which is most troubling to them? Well, you know, we have an interesting situation today in that we've gotten very good at treating the movements of Parkinson's disease, at least early on in the disorder. So for the first four or five years, people really aren't terribly troubled by their movement disorders because the treatments are so good. And certainly during that period, the people who have depression really are very much unhappy about it, complain quite a bit about having depression. And many of the studies that have actually looked at what has the biggest impact on quality of life have suggested that it's really the depression that has the biggest impact more than the movement problems. Again, that might be an artifact of the fact that early in the illness we have really good treatments for the movement disorders. There haven't really been those kinds of studies that have looked at people much later in the illness when the movement disorders are very much impacting their life. But certainly early in the disorder, which is you know when many of us see Parkinson's disease, when people are still ambulatory and coming to our outpatient offices, 
the depression clearly is having a very major impact on their quality of life. But isn't depression difficult to diagnose in the context of Parkinson's? I mean, you've already mentioned psychomotor slowing. Some of the symptoms of Parkinson's are also depressive symptoms. Doesn't it get kind of muddy? Yeah, that's certainly what everybody thinks. And I mean, you're right. If you look at how we diagnose Parkinson's disease and how we diagnose depression, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. You have in Parkinson's disease, you have quite a bit of difficulty with sleep. You have a lot of psychomotor slowing, difficulty with concentration, energy. Your face doesn't look like it has much emotion. So most people make the assumption that it is difficult to diagnose. We found actually over many years of doing this that, as in many things, if you take a kind of a simple approach to this, it's actually not so difficult. And that is you basically ask people how they're feeling emotionally. And if you focus on things like just a subjective sense of depression, hopelessness, not really looking forward to the future, crying a lot, feeling like they're a burden to people. So if you focus really on those psychological issues, it usually is fairly straightforward when somebody's depressed, and they'll be willing to admit that. So in the end, I think for the vast majority of patients, it's really not very difficult. There may be some in the middle that are take a bit more experience to tease out. In general, I don't think most of us would have too many difficulties figuring this out. Given the fact that nearly half of Parkinson's patients do have depression, should we just screen everybody? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that that's true. Also, I think we have to realize against a background that for many years, depression in Parkinson's disease was very much under-recognized and under-treated. I think most people had the sense that it really wasn't all that important of an issue, but as these studies have begun to show that it really tremendously affects both the progression of the Parkinson's disease motor movements as well as quality of life, uh, I think it's very clear now that we should be looking for it. You know, you can screen fairly simply with a screener in your office, in your waiting room. I think most primary care physicians are now fairly familiar with doing this in most of their patients, and you can certainly do it in Parkinson's disease. And I've also found that many people with Parkinson's disease bring their caregivers or their spouse along with them to the appointment. So it's easy enough to ask the spouse what they think and if they've seen any of these problems that we typically associate with depression. Do you have a favorite screening instrument? You know, there are a lot of them out there. Many people will use something like the PrimeMD or the Beck Depression Inventory. I think it really doesn't matter a whole lot if you have one that you're comfortable Mm -hmm. with and that you're using in in your general patients. I think it would work perfectly well in Parkinson's disease. So I think it's more a matter of asking the question than really which one you use. You could actually sit down and make one up yourself, I think, fairly easily. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Robert Wood Johnson, Department of Psychiatry Professor, Dr. Matthew Menza. We are discussing coexisting Parkinson's disease and depression. Now, Matt, you've done a lot of work in this area. Tell us about your research. Right. We've been looking for quite a few years at the efficacy of a variety of treatments in Parkinson's disease. And it's actually surprising that despite how important depression seems to be to these people, there really have been very few well-done studies in the past. The field has gotten a bit of an impetus, largely from patients and patient advocates recently. They've gone to the National Institute of Health and made their opinions very clear that they need some answers on how to best treat these problems. The study that we just most recently published in the journal Neurology was one in which we took a group of people and randomized them to either nortriptyline, which is an older tricyclic antidepressant, 
paroxetine, which is an SSRI, and placebo and followed those patients for up to six months. One of the interesting things about this study was that nortriptyline is a dual reuptake inhibitor, which affects both serotonin and norepinephrine, while paroxetine is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. What we actually found, a bit surprisingly in this study, was that nortriptyline, the older drug, really did outperform paroxetine. It was Mm. pretty clear for not only depression, but for sleep and anxiety and quality of life. And again, thinking of our listeners, especially with the more recently trained docs out there, nortriptyline maybe when they've even never prescribed. I see that with the students I work with all the time. They have this negative feeling about tricyclics to the point where they're afraid to even use them. Right. And to some extent, I understand that. The nortriptyline as a tricyclic can have effects on cardiac conduction. And so we really do caution physicians that if they're going to use nortriptyline, we should be sure that somebody doesn't have a pre-existing cardiac conduction deficit. But having said that, for those of us who are a little older and have used these drugs in the past, you actually can use them quite successfully. And I think many of us who teach residents spend quite a bit of our time trying to convince them to at least give it a try so they're somewhat familiar with it. At any rate, in this study, nortriptyline, the tricyclic, clearly did outperform the newer drug, paroxetine. There are, as I'm sure your listeners know, other dual reuptake inhibitors, including Effexor and Cymbalta, that we didn't test in this study. It may very well be that they work just as well as the older one, nortriptyline. So we don't know if we can generalize those findings, but we may be able to. That's right. We don't. You know, tricyclics also have other advantages. They tend to be quite sleep-inducing, and since Mm -hmm. many of these patients have problems with sleep, it may be that that was actually a very beneficial side effect for them. And I think that's true in depression in general. If you have somebody who's not sleeping very well, you should keep the tricyclics in mind. If we could, can we give our listeners a refresher course on nortriptyline? How do you dose it, and what kind of monitoring do you need to do? Right, so nortriptyline, the trade name is Pamelor. We, in these patients, at least start at 25 milligrams uh, every night. It's a once-a-day drug. You give it at night. And the typical dose is usually around 75 milligrams per day. In this study, I think our average dose was in the high 60s. There are plasma levels that you can draw, which makes nortriptyline kind of a nice drug because you can look to see if the patient is actually absorbing enough of it to do what you want it to do. You can get a nortriptyline level drawn as a regular blood test, and you're looking for a value of somewhere between 50 and 100. Occasionally, you'll need to give somebody up to maybe 100 or 125 milligrams. It can cause a bit of dry mouth, like most of the tricyclics, and occasionally some constipation. And as I mentioned before, it can affect cardiac conduction, so you do have to be sure that somebody doesn't have a badly impaired conduction system prior to giving them the treatment. Other than that, it's a fairly straightforward depression medication. So you do a pre-treatment EKG. Do you need to follow up with EKGs after they've been on the nortriptyline? Yeah, you know, there's some debate about that. We, in this study, did because it was part of a you know standardized research protocol. I think in practice, probably if somebody's younger and doesn't have conduction deficits, most physicians would probably get an EKG once a year. I think if it's an older person and you're a little bit more cautious about their conduction system, you probably would want to get a second EKG once they had established their standing dose that they were going to be taking. So after a month or two, you might want to get another EKG and then follow it every six months. And how often doing the plasma levels? That's one that I would probably get somebody up to the dose 
at which they seem like they're doing pretty well, and then I'd get a level then, and if it was in the normal range, I'd probably get a level every six months or probably even every year. What advice can you give to our listeners who are treating Parkinson patients that also have depression? There are a couple of take-home messages here. The first is you, you certainly want to ask about this. Again, it's pretty clear from a lot of studies that have been done in neurology clinics that depression is under-recognized and under-treated. So the, the first thing is clearly understanding that this is a significant problem for many of these patients, and if you don't ask about it, you may not hear about it. Many people in this age cohort are a little hesitant to talk about emotional matters and things like depression, which they may feel is a, a little bit of a moral failing, so you really do need to ask them about it. I think the second thing that's very important is to recognize that antidepressants can be helpful for these people. I mean, an attitude that we run into a lot from both patients and physicians and other staff is the idea that, of course, you're depressed, you have a serious illness, and the implication there is that because it's secondary to the illness, you probably can't do anything about it Mm -hmm. if you can't remove the illness, but Mm -hmm. that's clearly not true. Even if you have Parkinson's disease, these antidepressants can be helpful in making you feel quite a bit better. I think it's also important to remember that many of the other things like social support and exercise that we talked about earlier, keeping socially active, eating well, counseling perhaps, all of these things are potentially helpful. We're actually in the middle of another study funded by the National Institute of Health in which we're looking at these non-pharmacologic approaches to depression and Parkinson's disease. And thus far, I would say that uh, they are actually quite helpful also. So many of the things that we would do in other people with depression, like cognitive behavioral therapy, focusing on sleep, social involvement, exercise, healthy eating, they really do appear to be helpful for these people. And I guess the last point I really want to make is that this is not just treating depression, that these individuals in our clinical trials and certainly in our clinical practice, if their depression gets better, they often sleep better, they're less anxious, they're much more involved in life. It can really have a wide-ranging effect on them. So you're treating a whole spectrum of illnesses and not just the depression. Makes good sense. Parkinson's patients are people too. That's right. (laughs) Thanks so much for being on the show. Okay, it's been my pleasure. We've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Menza in New Jersey about the diagnosis and treatment of depression in Parkinson's patients. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. You may also call us toll-free with your comments, questions, and suggestions at 888-639-6157. Again, that's 888-639-6157. Thank you for listening.